welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Example, I remember in the early days of the weight program, going through a patient's life history with their, what did you weigh when you were born? In kindergarten, sixth grade, if you don't remember, were you normal size, very thin, the fattest kid in the class, etc. We get into her 20s and she tells me that at age 23, she was raped and in the year subsequent gained 105 pounds. And then she looks down at the carpet and mutters to herself, overweight is overlooked. And that's the way I need to be. Okay. <clears throat> wow. What we had seen as the problem, she is seeing as the solution to problems we ordinarily know nothing about. Welcome to this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy. And in this episode, we are talking about the history of ACEs or adverse childhood experiences and what they taught us about coping mechanisms and how we hide our pain. We're answering the specific question, what do ACEs show us about escapes from our pain? This week, I have Dr. Folletti himself as a guest for this episode. He is the co-founder of the original ACE study. We talk quite a bit about obesity and addiction in this episode and how Dr. Folletti's use of ACEs led him to a revolutionary discovery that many of the health conditions people are facing are actually solutions to problems that are much deeper and much more complex than just changing your diet, going to the gym, eating fewer calories. Be prepared for so much more compassion for your body and what it does for you that you have misunderstood and maybe even hated it for doing, whether this is for you or for those you work with. Here is what you will learn on this episode. One, how preventive measures involving addressing stored trauma could be game changers for medicine. Two, how the correlation between obesity and childhood sexual abuse was even discovered. Three, why conditions like obesity and addiction are judged unfairly and why obesity and addiction shouldn't be viewed as problems anyway. And why focusing on diet for weight loss has the lowest success rate. Dr. Folletti actually graduated from medical school and from Johns Hopkins in 1962. And by the year I was born, which we will not name, but by the year I was born, he was serving as the clinical professor of medicine at the University of California. He has served as a captain in the United States Army, in the medical corps of the, of the United States Army. And he founded the preventive medicine department at Kaiser in San Diego and that is where, in his work with the uh, obesity clinic especially, he, he started this discovery that we're going to talk about today and wrote an article, finally got it submitted and accepted into the Journal of Preventive Medicine, and it became the most cited article. Welcome, Dr. Folletti. Thank, uh, thank you for your time today, but also thank you for your contribution to medicine. Well, you're more than welcome, Amy. I'm delighted to be here. And just so that you know, you played a huge influence for me in deciding to leave surgery, general surgery, and go into preventive medicine 
because of my, my life experiences. And I was looking for how can I make childhood trauma and these types of things be a specialty of mine? Because as it exists right now, there is no specialty unless you go into psychiatry. And I, I am not a psychiatrist type either. <laughs> so you played a huge influence because I was like, all right, if he went into preventive medicine and that's what he's doing as a preventive medicine doctor, then that's what I can do as well. So that's what I did. Came into Loma Linda University for preventive medicine residency and then have also become board certified in addiction medicine, which is so closely related to your work. But let's go back because you were not expecting to find these results. You were not looking for these results. In fact, in fact, your study, your visual results came out of frustration that your best patients were dropping out of your program. <laughs> yes. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, I started out doing infectious disease work for about 10 years. And then I was asked to start a department of preventive medicine. I had no particular interest in preventive medicine, but I saw it as a great opportunity because I'd have a lot of freedom and be running my own department. <clears throat> and it worked out well that way. The onset of the department was copied from uh, an operation we had up in Oakland that really had uh, attained worldwide attention, and that was called the Multiphasia Clinic up there. And they provided very comprehensive medical evaluation to adults. I went up to visit. I decided that we could easily copy that. I felt a need to add one component to it, namely psychological components to it. And so we built what we called here health appraisal, a two-visit process that at its peak was providing very unusually comprehensive medical evaluation to 58,000 adults a year in one setting. This was really probably the largest single site operation of its type in the Western world. One of the problems- I want to say just like providing some context for people, preventive medicine was a newer concept back then. Oh yeah. It, it, it was still at that time, still very much focused on what is our current problem? What is our current diagnosis? Not necessarily how do we prevent people from getting yeah. these diagnoses? Yes, correct. So you, you were already a trailblazer. Yeah. One of, the, one of the frequent issues we ran into was obesity. And it quickly became obvious to me after I studied several hundred cases that sending somebody to see a dietitian was basically a waste of time. It, it got them out of the office, but you know, when we looked what happened 16 and 18 months later, uh, six and 18 months later, the results were really very discouraging. Around that time, in the early to mid 1980s, Sandoz Pharmaceuticals brought out a product called Optifast, which allowed one to take a person off all food for up to one year drinking basically water only with some Optifast mixed in it and not die. I have to now, admit, though, that sounds awful. Well, <laughs> well, I, mean, I guess if you really need to lose weight, if your health is at risk for yeah. all these other complications, you're going to be willing to do it. It, it, it. That aspect of it, you know, was, was not that difficult and it worked out really well. I mean, we treated a huge number of patients, zero deaths, et cetera, zero complications. And we were taking people down at maximum about 300 pounds in one year. 
Which is amazing. Impressive. I mean, we were not seeing people who needed to lose 20 pounds. Right. Okay? You know, 100, 200, 300. The heaviest patient we ever had was 850 pounds. So these... And I then, know that I know that your your patients had some insights, but in terms of just from the medical standpoint, that would have been a huge success for you as a physician yeah. and and for the whole medical community. Like, look at what we're able to do. We are actually able to safely bring people down yeah. 100, 200 pounds in one year. Yes. It, it was and, like success. We've arrived. And then we discovered we had a high dropout rate. Yes. The people who were doing successfully, which drove us nuts. And exploring that led to make, to make a long story short, led to discovery that childhood sexual abuse was a frequent issue, totally unrecognized. In good part, because we've all been taught as children very effectively that nice people don't talk about certain things and surely don't ask questions about them. So this was really quite quite an issue. And ultimately, we discovered that what we had viewed as the problem, namely a person's morbid obesity, was typically their solution to problems that we knew nothing about. And they knew this. And they knew this. Yes. The, simple, the most important question in understanding obesity is how old were you when you first began putting on weight? And then the next question, that's a safe question. I mean, nobody gets upset with that. The next question, why do you think it was then? Why not three years earlier or five years later? Why then? What was going on? Wow. And then we discovered that if you're going to do this on a large scale, it's best to get the information initially by an inert mechanism, a questionnaire filled out at home rather than face-to-face. Now, we did this, as I say, the questionnaire was a biomedical questionnaire, 10 pages long, that everyone filled out before coming in for comprehensive evaluation. And I integrated the ACE questions into it. The ACE questions were related to the 10 most common issues we ran into in the obesity program. Number one was childhood sexual abuse. In the obesity program, in 1,100 consecutive adults, men and women, 55% acknowledged the history of childhood sexual abuse. And typically that was when weight gain began. But then others grew up in alcoholic households. Mom abandoned the family when I was four. You know, my brother committed suicide, all sorts of things like that. And it was clear that we were seeing people with monstrous backgrounds that were totally unrecognized. We decided to take the 10 most common of those, not the only ones in the world by any means, but the 10 most common in a clearly middle-class population where 74% had been to college. And that was the basis for the A study. And the A study was carried out on a large scale. We asked 26,000 people coming through for comprehensive medical evaluation if they would help us. 17,500 agreed to cooperate. And then we started with very comprehensive medical evaluation and followed them for 20 years. 
Kaiser has a quite stable population. So it was possible to see, you know, what might develop in eight years or 13 years that hadn't occurred yet. And then matching those things occurring in adult life against life experiences in childhood. But how do you deal with these unspeakable issues? Well, that was easy. We would say to a patient in the exam room, I see on the questionnaire that, can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? And we listened, period. No humbug about, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, that must have been awful. That's terrible. No, we listened, period. But we did one other thing. We implicitly accepted them. And I used to be stopped several times every week for years by patients going home at the end of visit two. Now, th this is comprehensive medical evaluation now, not, not obesity. I mean, there were some obese patients there, but this was not the obesity program. By patients who wanted to thank me for asking those questions in the questionnaire, and then often went on to tell me how grateful they were to the examiner who, hearing the dark secrets of their life, went on, was so nice to me. They even want to see me again. And I thought, my God, you know, what must have happened to these people that they were living in such deep shame that being able to speak openly with someone, you know, was of profound value to them. Yeah, what I also know is that that was not the experience of your colleagues. And so well, while, <laughs> while, the, while the patients themselves are opening up and expressing, sounds like both surprise and gratitude. That was not the reception that you got from your colleagues. In, indeed. The most common reception was, if I wanted to be a damn shrink, I'd have been a shrink. I'm a whatever. Or, you know, what the hell am I supposed to do with that information? That was 50 years ago, for God's sake. Well, what you do with it is really simple. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? And it was, you know, that had enormous impact and an enormous potential impact, which no one has touched yet. Potential economic impact. Because after doing this for a couple of years, a mathematician at the University of California who had a startup data mining company got wind of this and came by and offered to do, at no charge, a 135,000 patient study to see whether integrating the ACE questions into this 10-page medical history questionnaire had any discernible effect. Okay, 135,000 people, there are not many studies that size in the world on anything. That's two and a half years throughput for the department. Incredibly, he finds that adding the ACE questions triggered a 35% reduction in outpatient visits in their next year compared to their prior year, and an 11% reduction in emergency room visits. Founding numbers, and it makes me realize that these are pretty short-term economic outcomes, not just long-term. It's not just 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road you're going to see the benefit from a monetary oh, standpoint. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. This is pretty short-term results from just adding in 10 questionnaires oh. into that health appraisal form. Yeah. Actually, a good thing to interject here is it's important to understand that in all of medicine, 
there are only three sources of diagnostic information, patient history, physical examination, and laboratory studies. If you ask patients, and I've done this of 10,000 by questionnaire some years ago, at the 95% level, they assume it's lab tests that are the main source of diagnostic information. Oh, I want all the blood tests, doctor. Yeah, right. You don't have enough blood in your body for all of the blood tests. If you ask experienced physicians, they'll tell you that about 70% of the time, diagnosis comes from patient history, may be confirmed by physical findings or lab tests, but nevertheless from patient history. Patient history to get a really comprehensive history. If you're really going to be serious, well, you need to figure out why they became obese. Because the next thing you're going to run into with weight loss is that it's likely to be threatening. To women, obesity has the benefit of desexualizing them. To men, of providing the illusion of power by size. Example, I remember in the early days of the weight program, going through a patient's life history with their, what did you weigh when you were born? In kindergarten, sixth grade, if you don't remember, were you normal size, very thin, the fattest kid in the class, etc. We get into her 20s and she tells me that at age 23, she was raped and in the year subsequent gained 105 pounds. Then she looks down at the carpet and mutters to herself, overweight is overlooked, and that's the way I need to be. Okay? Wow. What we had seen as the problem, she is seeing as the solution to problems we ordinarily know nothing about. And, And that's true whether you're dealing with obesity, whether you're dealing with alcoholism, smoking, drugs. Drug, drug use, substance use, overeating, uh, and and a long list of other things are really just solutions sure. to the problem. They are not the problem. Well, a really good example. A, a woman in town here, a retired United States federal judge, has written one of the most open autobiographies that I think has ever been written. The book is called Judging Me can be found on Amazon. Her last name is Bullock, B-U-L-L-O-C-K. And she was the incest victim of her father for over a decade. Worse yet, he used to bring her as a young teenager into saloons at night. She describes all of this in, in her book, bring her into saloons at night and sell her to strangers for sex. Somehow she did not commit suicide. She did not become a mass murderer. She graduated high school, scholarship to college, graduated, scholarship to law school, graduated, law school professor, ultimately United States federal judge. Judge Bullock has had five different kinds of cancer, not relapses, five different kinds of cancer and three autoimmune diseases, lupus, multiple sclerosis, and rheumatoid arthritis. In the ACE study, we looked at potential outcomes, the whole range of things, and we looked at 16, we looked at 23 different autoimmune diseases and found a clear relationship, a dose-response relationship of 16 of those autoimmune diseases to underlying ACE score. So, you know, this is really profound how 
what happens to a child in the developmental years of their life, you know, plays out a half a century later. Things are happening on a cellular level that even though you don't see it on the surface, that does not mean that it has not changed one's biology. And that's what needs to be addressed. That's what we need to start looking at if we're really going to be able to help people and make some of these changes and even prevent them from getting the cancers and getting the autoimmune disease because we can catch it early enough and we can redirect how the biology is playing out. And, and so, so much of what um, I teach in my courses, and I've got the certification course now for providers so that they can start to see these patterns of being able to recognize, oh, these are the disease patterns of somebody who has had life experiences that were traumatic because what um, so much of what your work highlights, Dr. Filetti, is that when people don't talk about it, it actually makes it worse in terms of the changes to their biology. Yeah. And even, you know, you, you mentioned the study where they came in and they showed the drastic reduction in emergency room visits and even outpatient visits. And, and that was when they were already an adult. Imagine the power that we could have if we started implementing this earlier and being able, being able to help children be able to express this stuff so that it doesn't have as drastic of an impact on their biology on a cellular level. That's, that's my dream. That's my goal. The amount of denial of some of those events by a child's parents. I mean, I can think of an example, woman being molested as a little girl by her uncle. She tells her mother and her uncle says, oh, you're misunderstanding. He would never do anything like that. Don't say things like that. That's terrible. Well, she was shut down. As a young teenager, she is smoking three packs a day for the psychoactive benefits of nicotine. Nicotine has benefits. It has anti-anxiety activity within 15 or 20 seconds of inhalation, major risks 15 or 20 years away, etc. She gets married at 17 to escape her family. Her husband intensely tries to get her to stop the three-pack-a-day smoking. Finally, at age 35, he succeeds. She quits smoking. And suddenly she is faced with male sexual attention that she never had to deal with before. It's unmanageable. That's as she explained to me, you know, the cloud around you when you smoke three packs a day keeps people at a certain distance. She eats to reduce her anxiety, as in our expression, sit down, have something to eat, you'll feel better. Well, she needed to feel better a lot because this was very threatening to her. She went from 130 to 310 pounds. And at that point, she was in acute and chronic respiratory failure because the lung damage that she could handle at 130, she could not at 310. So I meet her a couple of decades later when she comes into our obesity program before we had really figured out what we're doing. And we take her from 310 to 150. And we're, oh, wow, haven't we done something wonderful for this lady? The male sexual attention comes back, and she consciously makes the decision to get back over 300 pounds and just accept the fact she's going to be on oxygen 24 hours a day for the rest of her life. And I have this in a videotaped interview with her, and she makes this incredible statement 
that it's important to understand that weighing 300 pounds and smoking three packs a day are not the problem. They're the symptoms of the problem. And I thought, oh my God, I wish I had met you 50 years ago when I was in medical school. <laughs> I mean, it would have made my career a lot easier. Having a physician, regardless of subspecialty or not, develop a, in their mind, a really comprehensive medical history questionnaire that patients would fill out at home. And then what we did was we, we uh, fed that into a digital scanner, picked up all of the yes answers, organized them by body system, gave us a nice two, sometimes three-page printout, take you two, three minutes to read that before you met the patient. Before you even met somebody for the first time, you knew where you needed to go further, where you didn't need to go further. And, you know, it was you might realize that something that presents as a subspecialty problem, oh my God, the potential causal issues are in a totally different area that I don't ordinarily think about or ask about. And let me just highlight for people, making sure that they heard what you said, because it was so powerful. One is just the asking, right? Like the asking is the doing. Yeah. There, there, there's, you don't need to do therapy. You don't need to do all this counseling. Just asking is the doing. Indeed. The asking and listening and implicitly accepting is a powerful form of doing. Mm-hmm. And the asking is best done initially by an inert mechanism. You know, and then I see on the questionnaire that, can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? and listening, and implicitly accepting. Thank you. Thank you for your work. And thank you for joining me for this episode. One of the most powerful takeaways for me was how we, me, as a professional, can vastly enhance my patient's experience by asking the hard questions, showing them that I am not afraid of their pain and their life experiences. It wasn't always easy for me. And I had to do a lot of my own trauma work, had to learn somatic work, parts work, and specifically get skilled at changing my chronic functional freeze, which is another expression of stored trauma in my body, because I was very uncomfortable with another person's pain because it would trigger my own. And I would actually start to get sick and have flare-ups of my own health conditions, inflammation and gut issues and sleep problems. And so this was my work to become a better professional so that I could then create that safe space for my patients to be able to share a hard life experience and know that I was not going to be afraid of it. Our pain needs a voice. If we don't give it a voice, it will speak through our body. Oftentimes, our emotions, pain, trauma can be so suppressed that it is repressed And then it is only expressed through our body's health symptoms, conditions, and diagnoses. But either way, our pain will find a way to be expressed. And so, my friend, this is your invitation to go deeper into your own work to safely opening up the stored trauma, especially if you already have any physical health symptoms inflammation, gut issues, skin issues, autoimmunity, fatigue, chronic pain, brain fog, sleep issues, anxiety, depression. We have to safely open up the body. You can't just do anything 
and expect the body to experience that as safely opening up the pain it has been carrying. In the show notes, I will include links to my guide on steps to identify and heal trauma. And this will give you a good idea of some of the other physical health symptoms that are clearly related to store trauma in the body. I will also include a link to the foundational journey, which is a guided six-week journey with me to safely open up. And as I lead you through the essential sequence for addressing stored trauma in the body, you can become skilled at learning to work with and open up safely those areas of pain in your body. Speaking of essential sequence, I will include the link to the essential sequence guide so that you know how to do things in the right order, the right things in the right order. Many times we have done the right things, but in the wrong order. That is also not giving our body the safety that it needs to open up. If you're ready to actually get started with something, I'm going to include link and information to the somatic exercises for emotions behind chronic health conditions. This is a do-it-yourself seven-day guided video exercises that you can get started with learning some somatic work today. And then I will include some of my favorite biology of trauma tools, C60 for oxidative stress that can accumulate with chronic stress and trauma, vibrant blue essential oils, especially the parasympathetic blend that will help your nervous system shift out of stress and survival into relaxation, and then castor oil packs to help your digestive issues and clearing out those toxins since trauma and toxins run together. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and if you could take a moment to rate this podcast, the Biology of Trauma podcast is something that I commit to, to bringing you information, and knowing that it is bringing you valuable information helps me quite a lot. It also helps other people find valuable information. So please take a moment to rate this podcast episode today. And with that, until next episode, lots of love. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey. And you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love.